House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I am Al Warren. Mr. Dave Martino is drinking his whiskey. <laughs> yes, that, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. I'm a professional, Al. Oh, please. I wouldn't be sitting here drinking whiskey. <laughs> it's afternoon in yeah. your part, so you are drinking. I'm drinking. Yeah, it's, after, <laughs> it's afternoon, so, you know. There's no lion here. Mr. Karate Kid. <laughs> That's right. So it's always 5 o'clock somewhere, as they say. Yeah. Well, there you go. And you're going to be in the new Karate Kid uh, 18, right? Am I? <laughs> That'd be cool. Well, after your, <laughs> after your premiere video and all that. Yeah. We'll yeah, that's right. That I was critiqued. Yeah. By an actual uh, Wing Chun, uh, Wing Chun uh, uh, Kung Fu practitioner. Sounds like a doctor. <laughs> you look <like>, what? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> practitioner. <laughs> practitioner. Yeah. He's like, is he in like a natural path? He gives you frog natural. legs and exactly. And, exactly. And Acupuncture and. Oh yeah, just do it all. Sticking you with needles and making you eat dead frog and. And, all that stuff. And you come out a professional. That's right. Oh, there you go. That's exactly the way it happens. Okay. Well, so now we are going to, um, let's see, we're going to the Alabama area. And uh, we haven't been there in a while. And we're going to be talking with an author today. His book is called With the Devil's Help. And it's a true story of poverty, mental illness, and murder. Uh, the guest is is the writer Neil Wooten. Thank you for being here, Neil. Ah, oh, thank you for having me, Neil. Um, this is an interesting book. Um, what got you to get into actually decide to write this book? Like, was there some sort of thing that made you sit down and go, "Yeah, I need to write this"? There, there really was something that happened. I mean, I had written eighteen books of fiction, so I had not ever thought about writing the book. Um, I think because as a child, they were things we weren't, we weren't allowed to talk about. You know, our grandfather was one of them. So that kind of sticks with you as you grow up, I guess. But one day I was looking on Facebook, and there's a gentleman in this area who started a Facebook page called DeKalb County Historical, um, Historical Group, something like that. And he, he posts these old newspaper clippings that he finds, you know, uh, that seem interesting to him. And one day I happened to see the newspaper clipping from 1962 when my grandfather shot and killed his son-in-law over a dispute over potatoes. So I thought that was interesting, and I messaged him and said, uh, or I posted on the on the Facebook page and said, you know, that was my grandfather. And everyone started asking questions, wanting to know more about this murder over potatoes. And it dawned on me that I, I probably needed to tell this story now because once my mom and I are gone, it's probably going to be lost forever. So I, that was really the what set it off. Did you find it difficult to write a book about your family, um, especially with something like this, like uh, the, the, the shot and killed and all that stuff? Was that kind of a let's say hard as in did, did your family want you to do that or were they kind of shy of do it talking about this well it was it was extremely hard for me and i think a lot of relatives who didn't know a lot of the things that happened it may have been 
a shock to them, but no, everyone everyone has been very supportive. My mother didn't read it until it was published and out in book form. My sisters read it in the manuscript form, but my my mom, when she found out I was writing the book, I think her exact words were, "Oh no, you're going to air our dirty laundry." And I said, "Yes, ma'am, I guess I am." And uh, but after she read the book, she loved it, and so everyone since the book has come out that has read it has been very, very supportive of it. What did you want to get out of the book? Besides telling the story, of course, was there something um, you were hoping that would be achieved by the book? Well, what I was hoping that people would take from it is that it doesn't matter what you accomplish after. You know, some people, I think, believe that you have to go on and accomplish great things. You have to become a millionaire. You have to become a famous actor. You have to become a senator. But I think just surviving an ordeal like this, just, uh, you know, a lot of people have these stories of uh, violence and un- unstable uh, childhoods or, or even marriages, you know, that I think it's the story that needs telling regardless of what happens to a person after. That's what I would like people to take it, you know, take from it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, um, let's talk about your little bit of a, a, a background here. So now you... Uh, you grew up in Alabama, right? So let, maybe explain kind of your conditions of how you grew up. Well, I grew up in a little town called Blake. It's just one of those in unincorporated towns. It doesn't have a police force or post office. It's just a rural, a very small rural town. Um, my grandfather had given my mom and dad 30 acres of wooded land way back in the woods. So at the end of this dirt road, it was still several hundred yards on back to where my dad decided to build a home and uh, and by a home he built it in about four days it was a little shack basically so you know I grew up thinking it was pretty normal I didn't know uh, I knew that I had visited cousin's house who had bathrooms inside the house which I thought was just the most marvelous thing in the world but I thought only a handful of people had that. I didn't know at that time, you know, in the 70s that everyone had that. So, no, we had the outhouse. We uh, we didn't have running water. We had to go down into the woods at a, a spring, very great, clear, wonderful water. But we had to go down into the hollow, as we called it there, to get a drinking water and water to cook with and water to bathe with and carry it back up to the house. We had electricity uh, electricity on occasion, but very, very rarely, and it never lasted much longer than a month because my dad would never pay the bill the second time, you know. So I would say in the 10 years that the book covers on my life, just a handful of times we had electricity. So mostly we just had kerosene lamps, and you, you just get used to it. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Um... What was it like living that way? You know, did, did it feel difficult at the time, or did it just did it just seem normal to you because that you didn't know anything else? It, it just seemed normal. Uh, you know, we had uh, an Ashley wood burning uh, heater in the living room. It's the only room that had heat. And people, I think, are surprised that I talk about the cold. When you think about Alabama, you think about the heat and the humidity, which is you know really unbearable in the summer here. But on Sand Mountain, which gets colder than any other place in the south, it's just uh, the winters were just, you know, it would it, they don't last as long and we don't get the snow and ice, but it's nothing for the temperatures to drop to zero. And when you're in a house that doesn't even have finished walls, 
much less insulation. What I what I remember being painful as a child was the was the winters. They were just bitter, bitter cold. And uh, but no, I didn't know it was that different than what other people lived until I was much older. So you didn't think about it being hard. You just thought about it as being, you know, that was just life. So when you were uh, grow, growing up, um, what did you know about your grandfather? I didn't know anything except the stories I had heard about his speed. And I mean, old people on the mountain would tell these stories that were like folklore legends about how fast he was. And I'm sure it's true because my dad, who was shorter and much heavier than my grandfather, was the same way. He just unimaginable un, un, speed. But I didn't know he, well, I, I don't want to tell too much to, you know, give the spoiler away in the book, but I didn't know anything about him until I was 13 years old when he died. I didn't know anything about him until after he died because he was on the lamb, as it says in the book blurb, you know, he escaped from prison. So we, I didn't know he existed basically. Yeah. Did you, did you know, um, what he was in prison for when you were a kid, or was that something you found out later? All, I found out everything after he died because they couldn't trust. We were so young, they couldn't trust us with the information because we were being followed by agents always. You know, that's another thing as a kid that I thought was normal. We were always followed by a black car with men in black suits, and sometimes they would just watch us with binoculars. Sometimes they would follow us in their car, and sometimes they would even knock on the door, which would result in a confrontation between them and my dad and because they knew dad had helped um so that's uh that's all i knew is uh, i didn't know anything about him i didn't even know that's what the black men were visiting us or were spying on us for it wasn't until after he died that they could trust us with that information and then i started hearing all the stories about my grandfather so no i didn't know anything until i was 13 now, I'm wondering, can you tell us how he escaped uh, prison and if he was uh, caught? He was never caught. He lived the rest of his life hiding in plain sight, basically. He changed his name. Uh, but how he escaped uh, was nothing spectacular at all. He somehow became a trustee. And now keep in mind, he was convicted of murder. And, you know, you've seen you, with your radio show your viewers or listeners know that you know you don't make violent offenders trustees but he and my dad were both very charming men they could tell people what they wanted to hear so somehow a convicted murderer talked them into letting him become a trustee and one day they took him over to mow the warden's lawn the second time they had done it they took him over and dropped him off with a lawnmower and a gallon of gasoline and just left him there don't come pick him up in an hour and he decided it was too pretty a day to mow it was too pretty a day to be captive i guess and he facilitated his own release a tad early and as we would learn the fbi or whoever the agents were i'm not sure what agency they were with they kind of frowned upon that kind of thing did your parents know um where he was was he in communication with them you think he No, it was completely unplanned. My grandfather walked away that day completely unplanned, and he walked halfway to North Alabama through the woods, and uh, sometime late that night, he called my dad, and uh, my dad came and got him and 
hit him out uh, really for the rest of the time. He moved him around a lot until he finally found a home and convinced him that the best thing to do was just get on with life and hide in plain sight, and that's what he did. He uh, he lived in this little house above Rising Fund, Georgia, and that's where he spent the rest of his life. Were you able to talk to your, your father about that situation and about your father kind of uh, knowing where your grandfather was, and, and was he worried about ever being caught? Oh, he's always worried. Uh, I know, I, and again, these are stories I learned later. My granddad would get so paranoid, he would take to the woods. You know, something would just uh, spook him, and he would just hide out in the woods for weeks or months at a time, just living in the woods. And uh, But my dad, I'm sure, was worried. My dad was threatened a lot by the agents you know he was uh they were always threatening to put him in jail even when when my grandfather pete passed away they issued a final warning to my father telling him that if he bear uh, that if he brought him back to alabama to bury him that would mean that he knew where he was and they would arrest him you know for being an accomplice and of course my dad is ever defiant you know he brought pete back to alabama he's buried right here in rainsville where all the Wootens are buried. So. Looking back on this whole thing, how do you think learning about all of this has changed you? Well, I don't know. Again, I was so young. All I know that when my mom finally told me, and she told me when my grandfather was on his deathbed, you know, when they knew that there was no threat anymore of one of the kids accidentally telling their friends at school or something, I guess, Everything just made sense because when we were growing up, besides being followed by the car, there were always these, there were other things that I can't give away uh, about the story that were just mysteries that I never understood. So uh, her just telling me that story, you know, suddenly everything made sense. But as far as how it has affected me as an adult, I don't think it really has, you know, uh, the, the violence and the anger my dad got from my grandfather, you know, that seemed to be passed along. I think all of us, there are five kids. I have four siblings and all of us got the temper to a degree, but most of us just keep it buried. So, uh, that, that really just ruled their lives. You know, their, their demons controlled them. So it, it, it definitely affected our lives in childhood, but I don't really think it had an effect on our, you know, my, me and my brother and sisters as adults. What kind of feedback do you get from the people that live in your area? Like, are they supportive or are they negative toward what your grandfather did? Oh, no, incredibly supportive. But keep in mind that the book is uh, even the, you know, my classmates that I went to school with almost my entire childhood, you know, at Sylvania, they, it was all a surprise to them because, again, we weren't allowed to bring people over, so no one knew that until this book. And I'm 57 years old now, and the people I went to school with, it was just is it was a shock. My my bus driver sent me a message apologizing. She said, I should have known something was going on and uh, things like that. But, no, the people here have been off the charts supportive. It's just amazing. Well, it seems like you faced a lot of uh, violence growing up. Um and it seems like you, you kind of uh, broke that circle. You know, what happened, and, and, and how did um, you and your family kind of move past that? You know, I my dad mellowed as he got older, 
And of course, if you read the story, and again, I don't want to give the spoilers away, but so did my grandfather. They seem to mellow out as they get older. Uh, I, I think children sometimes have a, two choices to make, and I don't know if it's a conscious decision, of course, but, you know, if you have a, a father who drinks, and by the way, my dad never drank, and I had to make sure I, I put that in the book because I knew people would automatically assume the violence and the alcohol would go together, but my dad was a teetotaler. He never drank. Um, but if, if a child has an alcoholic father, then maybe he has a choice to become an, alpha, an alcoholic himself or become a you know, a teetotaler, they go in a completely the opposite direction. And I think violence is the same. I think people, again, it may not be a conscious effort, a conscious choice, but, you know, they somewhere in their life they decide, am I going to be like that or am I going to be exactly the opposite? So I'm, I think I'm uh, probably too passive. You know, I, I just, I, I try to get to the point where I just let nothing bother me at all. And uh, because everything set my dad off, I mean, you could knock over a glass of water and that just set him off. You know, anything like that would just drive into, you know, drive him into a, a rage. So, yeah, I I think it's just uh, I think it's deep down you want to do something different and your mind takes it from there. I, I, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know exactly what happens. But I think people some point in their life make a decision to just go the opposite way. So now, uh, when your grandfather shot his son-in-law, so now that is your dad's sister's husband? Is that what it was? That's correct. My dad's oldest sister, Eileen, it was her first husband. And they were young. They were probably mid-20s uh, when this happened. And, uh, yeah, it was – It was. Uh, they had made a deal about growing potatoes and – uh, apparently, from the stories that I have gotten from relatives over the years, Raymond, my, uh, I guess, uncle at the time, he, uh, you know, kind of cheated my grandfather, and that was how my grandfather settled it. You know, he obviously had more civilized avenues he could have taken, but that's how he decided to settle it. Wow. How did that... Um work in the family dynamic. So how was your sister toward your father and everybody? Did it split the family? Oh, oh my gosh. It, it, it probably created, you know, our future family. I mean, there was division between my dad. When I was growing up, I never could understand why there was so much tension between my dad and his brothers and sisters, but I didn't know anything that had happened. But yeah, they, uh, for a long time, of course, even after, uh, my grandfather escaped, you know, there was, Eileen never forgave him. I don't believe she ever forgave him as long as she lived. Uh, she had, uh, three kids at the time and I'm not sure any of them ever forgave him. So I, I don't know. It was just, but it, it definitely just about created every foundation to our family from that point forward. So have you ever, contacted your sister's kids now that would be your cousins do you guys talk now or are you guys still separate oh we were always close uh it didn't divide us the cousins were always very close and actually i just met recently the oldest child of eileen who was actually it turns out we didn't know uh another thing is when i started writing this book i had cousins calling me up 
out of the blue, I haven't heard from in a while, letting me know what really happened that day because there was a lot of theories going around that it wasn't really Pete who shot Raymond, that perhaps there were, there were so many different theories, and I knew they weren't true because my dad actually tried to spread a lot of falsehoods in the beginning to throw off the law to try to save his dad from prison, but that kind of stuck with a lot of people, and they still believed it, but I met a woman recently who was my first cousin, who was Eileen's oldest daughter. She was 11 at the time, and she was there that day that it happened. So we actually have an eyewitness to the murder, uh, and she said it happened exactly like I have it in the book. So I was pretty confident on that. Now, she didn't want me to change the story in the book to say she was there, and that's not something that they even told people back then after it happened, but she witnessed it, so... Uh, yeah, I had never met her. She's much older. I was, this happened three years before I was born. So Mary would be 14 years older than me. So I met her for the first time right before the book was published. How did you find out, um, a little bit about how your father was brought up with his brothers and sisters and, and uh, by his father, your grandfather? And, uh, did you have a grandmother as well? Did they have a mother? Well, my dad, sadly, was not raised around his father much at all. He was raised by his grandparents. Um, that They're in the story a little bit. Van and Della Wooten, they raised my dad, Travis, because Pete was always chasing that pot of gold. He would go to Florida to work in the orchards. He would go to North Carolina to work in the um, tobacco fields. He He was not – he had a lot of kids, but he was not really – around a lot to be a father to any of them and when he was around it was always violent so uh, my dad just really you know the only stability he had at all was because of his grandparents and he only went to second grade at uh, Blake Elementary but that's the far you know that's the farthest my uh, father ever went in school but he was just a genius especially in math he just had a sharp mathematical mind. I always wondered what he could accomplish in life had he been born to a, a normal family, let's say, a middle class or a wealthy family that pushed their children to strive for academic excellence. You know, there's no telling what contributions to the world he could have made, but being that he grew up the way he did. So his dad definitely influenced his life in being an, well, dad, my dad was never an absentee father, but he, when Pete was around, the violence and the anger uh, definitely had an influence on my dad, I'm sure. Was your grandfather married then through that time or no? My grandfather married my uh, grandmother, Elsie, and Elsie's mother was Cherokee. And uh, so my dad, the weird thing is, I don't know if you've seen pictures inside the book, but the Wooten men in this area have uh, usually lighter brown hair or blonde hair and very, very blue eyes. He's a beautiful eyes like Windex. And my dad had those Native American features. He has very dark hair. He has eyes that are almost black, very dark complected. He stays red. You know, he would stay red too, you know, not just, you know, the tan color, but he would get red and stay red, especially when he was angry. He had no hair on his torso you know, on his chest or stomach at all. You know, he just had a lot of the Native American features. So, but Elsie died when I was two. So, I, I mean, I just have very, very faint memories of her. But he, they got divorced, which was not that common. But she finally got up the nerve 
to leave Pete. And then she remarried and uh, Pete eventually remarried too, a woman named Etta. So, but that's how it went with them. Did it, you know, when you were doing this and, and researching and stuff, were different family members um, very open to helping you and, and doing the book and telling you stories? Or were there some that didn't, didn't want to tell you stories? Oh no, a lot of them did. A lot of, a lot of everyone that contacted me wanted to help. Some of them were just not helpful, uh, in the sense that, um, they believe some of these alternative stories about the shooting. And, and of course I had some relatives that we were not really close to growing up that would contact me and say, well, you know, your, your grandfather and dad were such great people. And all I could think was, oh, you're going to be so disappointed when you read it. <laughs> uh, and they, don't get me wrong, they were. They yeah. were, in, in a sense, you know, uh, as I tell people, 80% of the time, my dad was very loving and caring. You know, he was a very doting father, you know, proud of his kids kind of thing. It's just when something set him off, he was just, I don't believe he could really control it. And, a lot, and not everybody saw that. Only people in their very close circle of cousins saw that side of him. So most people outside of that, all they saw was this charming, funny, intelligent man. And so, yeah, a lot of the relatives that contacted me, that's all they knew about him. So the book has been a bit of an eye opener. Not, not, I don't think they're totally caught off guard, but it's something they never personally witnessed. Was there something that you learned about your father that you didn't know before you did the book? No, there's nothing I learned about my dad. I think I, I, uh, my mom had told me stories about him and my grandfather all my life, or since I was 13 anyway. So uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't, there was no revelations about my dad. There's one story in the book that I didn't know about until dad's oldest brother died, uh, and that was Talmadge. He lived in North Carolina, and I drove dad and mom and Uncle Jerry, who was dad's much younger brother, uh, to the funeral. And uh, it was that weekend that Uncle Jerry told me a story I never knew. And when I mentioned earlier about there being a tension between my dad and his siblings, it didn't exist with Jerry. For some reason, the younger brother just always supportive of my dad. He is always encouraging. Even when my dad would lose his, lose his cool, lose his temper, and Jerry was always there to, you know, uh, he, he just wasn't like the others. And that weekend when we went to the funeral, Jerry told me the story that I believe is chapter eight in the book, A Brother's Love, uh, is where Jerry was about eight years old when the mom remarried, when Elsie remarried a farmer, uh, as was normal back in that day in the rural South, especially uh, fathers, uh, husbands didn't really take to their stepkids. It was not as common to be divorced back in that day anyway. So stepkids, you know, were not that loved let's say in most cases and in this case certainly not because the guy beat jerry and when my aunts my dad's sisters found out about it they wrote to my dad and my dad actually went awol he didn't have furlough as they called it back then schedule no leave schedule so he he went awol and he hitchhiked all the way home and the guy was out plowing with a mule uh and dad got a ride all the way there and he just walked out in the middle of the field and beat the guy to a pulp and then turned and walked back and hitchhiked back to base. And he was, 
demoted. He was put in the brig, as they say, and he was given KP duty for a month. And, uh, and he did that just because of what the guy was doing to his little brother. And, and I imagine that's why Jerry always saw my dad in a little bit different way than this other brothers and sisters. You know, after you've written this story and you, you've got the book out, um, do you look back and kind of go, well, did, did, is there a subtext below the storyline or something that you think is important for a reader to take away besides the actual, you know, events that happen? But is there some sort of underlying thing that, that comes across? Well, I... The thing to me is, you know, again, this was so long ago. This is 45 years ago for me, and it took me that long to be able to write it, to just not be embarrassed about it. You know, not so much having your grandfather convicted of murder, but just the life that we led in the, in the area that we lived. So I was almost embarrassed for, again, some of my friends who I grew up with, you know, went to school with to even find out now about how I grew up, you know. Uh, so I would I would think that if I wanted anyone to take anything from it, it's this, you know, if you have a story to tell, tell it. You're going to be surprised at the amount of support you're going to get. You know, my friends here just, you know, they were kind of blown away by the story, but just unbelievably supportive. There hasn't been one negative thing from anyone uh, about it, not even strangers, but certainly not from people I know. So, I think a lot of people out there, uh, whether it's, again, abusive marriages or childhoods that don't will never tell the story because of that reason. And I, I would say, you know, tell the story. Well, speaking of telling the story and, and writing and, you know, you've gotten to journalism. And how did that all happen? How did you get into writing journalism? What led you into that uh, direction? Well, you know, that, that is kind of an odd thing because up until I began writing, I didn't think I could do anything but count. I was on the math team at this little high school that I went to and, uh, which was very odd back in that day for small schools to have a math team. And I had several first place trophies where I would beat out every major huge high school in Alabama. Uh, I went to college and, you know, math because that was the only thing that was easy to me because my dad and granddad, that, I, that was just genetics. I got that from them. So I, I really only thought about math for many, many years. And, um, and I think I was, uh, I think I was probably almost 40 years old before I ever started writing. I read, you know, I never thought about it. I read all the time when I was a kid, when I start thinking about, about all the books I read, you know, it's probably in the thousands. And uh, I didn't realize that I was an avid reader. I didn't realize that that was even unusual to read that much at such a young age. So I think it's a natural progression for readers uh, to make, to get into writing. But it wasn't until I was almost 40 that I wrote my first uh, book that was not even, it was probably a novella. It was probably about 30,000 words. And it just kind of grew from there. And then the first novel I wrote wasn't until 2011. So 11 years ago, my first novel, and it was a Christian sci-fi novel, which is certainly an odd genre. And it uh, won 10 book awards and was named a Kirkus Reviews Best of 2011. And once that happened, you know, you just kind of get hooked on it. 
So now you've moved back to um, where you grew up, basically, after, after being away for 35 years, it says. Um, is there a reason for that? Do you feel you're, you really liked where you grew up? Well, yeah, I, I, there's a lot to love about it. There's a, obviously a lot that's, uh, uh, that's kind of stuck in time here. Uh, but, yeah, I live probably five miles from where I uh, uh, grew up. I'm right off the mountain now, but the mountain where Blake is, it's just it's like a few miles from here. So, uh, But, yeah, that was always my plan. I didn't mean to stay gone for 35 years. It was just uh, I don't know really how that happened. This is always home. I usually say that. You know, home is where you know where to fish, and I, I never knew where to fish anywhere else I lived. I come home to fish, so uh, this was always home. I, I had gotten married when I was 40 and lived in Milwaukee for 10 years, and my wife was a uh, she worked uh, she was a federal officer for Homeland Security. So our plan was to move back here when she had 20 years in with the government, and when the time as it got closer, she was from Chicago and I don't think she should get over that stigma she had about the South, you know, people in the North and probably out where you are kind of have these, uh, you know, somewhat limited ideas about the deep South. And, uh, but anyway, she decided she couldn't move and we got divorced and I continued with the plan and, and moved back here. So it, it has not changed a lot. Uh, there are certain things here like animals that really breaks my heart. You know, they don't do a lot of spaying and neutering here. Uh, they don't have lease laws. Uh, Ten years in Milwaukee, I saw one stray dog, and I helped the city catch him. And I, I moved back here the week I moved back, and I had already bought a house here about four years earlier and uh, that we were going to retire into, I guess. And um, my first week back here, I'm taking care of three stray dogs just in my neighborhood, and that that's kind of a heartbreaking thing for me here about the South, but you know, I, but certainly when you grow up someplace, you you still know it better than you know anywhere else. What do you think people get wrong about the deep deep South? Is there something uh, that you know most people get wrong when they when they think about that area? Uh, well, I can tell you this: when I was dating my ex uh, before we got married. Now, her family is from Mexico, but grew up in Chicago and uh, had been there to visit her. And she was getting ready to make a trip. I was living close to Montgomery, Alabama at the time, and she was getting ready to make her first trip to Alabama. And a week ahead of time, the phone rings and it's her sister, who I had never met, named Maria, calling from Los Angeles. And uh, she introduced herself, and she finally tells me why she called. She said, I understand Maggie's coming to visit you. And I said, yeah, uh, Maggie, her real name was Margarita. She's coming to visit you. And I said, yeah. And she, was, she said, well, I'm just really worried about that. And I said, why? And uh, I lived in a little town called Cusada, which is not much bigger than Blake, a very small little town outside of Montgomery. And she said, well, I'm just worried about her safety. And I said, let me get this straight. You live in Los Angeles. And Maggie lives in Chicago, and you're worried about her coming to Pusada, <laughs> Alabama? And uh, she said, well, you know, they have the KKK there. And I said, they're not going to be camped out at the airport <laughs> waiting on Maggie. But that's, it was just that, you know, and I'm pretty sure they have KKK everywhere. I have never seen a, a demonstration in my life 
but obviously they have them, but that was in her mind. That's all she could see, you know, so people think of the civil rights in the fifties and sixties and some of that just never goes away. You know, some people will never be able to get that images, you know, out of their head. So, you know, for people that grow up here, I don't see any difference. And it was in Milwaukee. When I went to Milwaukee and we were looking for a home to buy, the realtor is showing us this one house and I turned down the block. And the first thing I see is this four wheel drive truck with the hood open. It's got blocks under the wheels and there's like three guys without shirts. They got long mullets down the back, you know, and uh, they're working on the truck. And I said, oh, my God, I'm home. <laughs> and, we actually, and we actually bought that house. And really, Milwaukee, other than there being a lot more cheese and a lot more women riding motorcycles, which I love, it's not a whole lot different from Sand Mountain. Well, there you have it. You heard it here first. Um, <laughs> well, Neil, so now do you um, – do you do social media and are you into Facebook and all that? Do you interact with the people that like your books and reading or do you have a website? How do you like people to find you? Facebook is uh, my number one place and I, uh, I've just gotten so hooked on that. I lost my Facebook page recently and lost about 4,000 connections. I've been trying to build it back up. Uh, I had hackers, of course, break into my page and run up a bunch of ad purchases, which was so aggravating. Uh, but uh, I, I'm on Twitter, but I don't do Twitter much. Um, I don't really have a Facebook, I mean, a website anymore. I just, but Facebook has become my number one source. So, yeah, you can find me under Neil Wooten uh, on Facebook. And uh, I, I have half of my connections are friends and half of them are, are other authors. So I have a, a good uh, base of authors that I, uh, uh, you know, we kind of all, cheer each other on so to speak well that's great of course we'll we'll post all this stuff and your book on our website so people can find you that are listening with one click um so that's that's pretty amazing now um where do you go now what what's next for for neil well i have a, a book event in birmingham uh wednesday night and then saturday i have a book sign in at a library in mentone on lookout mountain and then uh, November 3rd, I have been invited to come speak to the entire student body at my high school. And uh, and the irony there is that uh, I think I spent more time in the principal's office than I did in class. So the fact that I get to, I get to go speak to these guys is awesome. And, uh, and then they've asked me to be the, uh, on December 10th, I will be the grand marshal in the Christmas parade. So it's, and, and I just learned this morning that, the first run of books of hardcover books is almost sold out and uh, it's only been six weeks. So that's pretty awesome. So Simon and Schuster has authorized the release of a paperback now, and they already have it posted on uh, Amazon and a release date of May 9th. So I will have a, and they don't do the paperbacks unless the hardcovers, you know, uh, sell us, uh, I guess a certain amount. So that's very exciting news that, after only six weeks, they've decided to release the paperback as well. And, of course, you still have the audio version. I had no idea. Of all the books I've published, I've never had an audio book done. And uh, Blackstone Publishers did the audio book for With the Devil's Help. And I did not know how popular audio books are, but it's amazing how many audio, uh, audio books have sold. 
And a, and a lot of people that live around here are asking me, you know, this guy, and the guy's name is Trevor Burns, I think. He's a professional voice, you know, artist. That's all he does. And they're asking me, well, did that guy grow up around here? How did he pronounce all these places right? You know, we have weird towns, like one called, little town called Chavez. There's no way you would know how to say that by reading it. But they actually sent me a list of about 300 words to record myself saying so that he would have uh, that as a guy to go by. And it must have worked great because people think this guy grew up on Sand Mountain listening to him. <laughs> well, that's great. You know, yeah, audio books are great. I, I do it as, you, as your eyes get poor and you get older. You uh, Audio books are a great, great resource to listen to books. So, you know, that's a good thing. A lot of people travel, too, so it's a good thing to just stick in your CD player in your car and listen. Yeah. Uh, How was – you must have been writing some of this over the pandemic and and all of the, uh, you know, things going on the last couple of years. Was it it difficult to get the book written with that going on? Well, it's probably more helpful. I mean, I was pretty much a recluse before. So the pandemic didn't really affect my life a lot, but uh, I was working on another book, which would have been my first nonfiction, and I got about halfway through as a woman who was kidnapped when she was 10 years old in 1982, and a guy ripped a hole in her screen and yanked her right out of the window in a place called Karen, Florida, which is now actually Lake... uh, that's something else now. The little town doesn't exist anymore where she's at, where she was. But anyway, she asked me to write the true story of her abduction and a very interesting story. And I was working on that. And when the pandemic hit, she just had too many things going on with her kids and grandkids. And um, she just wanted to put that on hold for a while. So after a while, I thought, well, while she's dealing with her demons, I'm going to write about my own. And so I wrote the book while I was waiting on her to, you know, get to the point where she could start back. Well, um, it's been a it's been a great conversation, and I really enjoy it. Now, the uh, book is called With the Devil's Help. It's a true story of poverty, mental illness, and murder. Our guest is the author, Neil Luton. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Neil. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.